If you have your Bibles, let's open them together to the book of Romans, chapter 8. This week and next week, we're going to be closing uh, this chapter together. And uh, we're going to be looking at just three verses this morning. Um, verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Um, and one commentator says when he, he speaks about the passages we're looking at today and the passages we'll be looking at next week, he calls these, these verses and the truths in which they contain um, the Christian's pillow. In other words, if you want true rest and you want true peace, these are the verses, these are the passages, these are the truths on which you lay your head, on which you hang your hat. And for some of us, we're already smiling and nodding our head. We, we know these verses. We've memorized these since we were children. And we know why they're beautiful. And we know why they're so full of truth. But for the rest of us, the question is, is why are they so beautiful? Why are they a pillow, so to speak? Well, let's find out together as we lay our head on these, on these passages. Again, reading from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, ending in verse 30. And this is God-breathed. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Let's pray together. O Spirit, we have once again wandered into your territory. Long ago, you, you took Paul and Peter and Moses, David, and through their own hand and through their own, their own mind, you inspired them to write these words flawlessly, truthfully, so that your people might have hope. And so our request of you this morning, Spirit, is that you would, as you've inspired them, that you would illumine us. And not that, that we would just know more, but that we might venture upon you, upon the work of Christ and the love of the Father, more fully and with greater faith. Make it so, for your glory and for your name's sake, we pray together. Amen. Um, anybody in here enjoy playing the game Monopoly? Maybe the better way to ask it is, anybody in here not enjoy playing the game Monopoly? What happens when friends and what happens when family members sit around the game of Monopoly together? What usually happens? Friends are no longer friends. Family is no longer family. Many of the family gatherings have been disunited because of this one game, Monopoly, right? We turn into monsters when we play this game. I don't know if you knew this, but um, Monopoly did not begin as, as a game for entertainment. Uh, it was actually created, and some historians say, as early as the late 1800s, as a teaching tool. Uh, teachers, professors created the game to instruct students. And so before it was you know, entertaining for us, and before it was you know, used by McDonald's for their promotion, it was actually used as a teaching tool. And so the question is, is, well, what was it trying to teach? It was trying to teach two things. First, it was trying to help students, especially business students, identify what a monopoly is. What is a true monopoly? And, and secondly, it was to help them recognize the dangers of monopolies. And if you're not a business major, fear not. What is a monopoly? 
as we ask ourselves, I'm sure there's people in the room who can explain it a lot better than I, but for the sake of discussion this morning, a monopoly is when, when one person or one entity has all of the goods. They have no rival, rival distributors. They alone have the goods that everybody needs. And if you have all the goods, what do you have? You have all the power. And if you have all of the power, what can you do? You can control. And you might say, okay, well, how is this a bad thing? What's the problem with a monopoly? Well, if you have all the power, all the goods, what can you do to prices? We call this gouging, right? Extortion. If I'm the only person that has the goods, I can charge whatever I want. And typically what happens when humans have monopolies is what do we do? We overcharge. We get greedy. Just like we do when we play Monopoly together. We turn into monsters. Well, in our passage this morning, we are looking at uh, nothing less than a monopoly. Paul is going to teach us about a particular monopoly, and it's true. Uh, And the question for us this morning in this passage is, well, it's twofold. It's, okay, well, then what are the goods, and then who's controlling them? What are the goods, and who's controlling them? Well, the goods are eternal life and salvation. And who's controlling it? It's not a human being. It's actually God himself. And what Paul is saying here in in no shortage of words is that do not be confused, O reader. There is no rival distributor. There is no rival seller. God himself holds the market on salvation and eternal life. And he shares this business with no one. It is exclusively his. He alone is powerful to save. He alone. He's got the monopoly. Now, if we're honest with ourselves and we kind of think about this concept of monopolies, monopolies make us nervous, right? Because we know what we do with monopolies, right? What ends up happening when one person or one entity has all the power, what usually ends up happening is is corruption, harming other people, exclusion of other people, right? That's what we do with monopolies. When you hear the word dictator, nobody in this room just goes, yay, awesome, we need more of those, those are good. No. What happens when one person has all the power? Other people are harmed, people are excluded. What's happening in North Korea? What happened in Germany during the Third Reich? Right? When one person has the power, bad things happen. And so when we hear about God especially having a monopoly of our salvation, we get nervous. And that might actually be too light of a word. For some of us, when we consider this, we know this. We've heard this before. We actually have disdain for God. And we have, we have anger towards Him and, and discomfort because we know what we do with monopolies. And we presume God does the same thing. But what if? What if this morning? What if this wasn't true? What if God uses His power, His monopoly... Uh, in, in, in ways that we don't use it, in, in ways differently than, than how we use monopolies. What if instead of using his power and his might not to exclude and not to harm and not to corrupt, what if he used his power to love, to include, and to save? If there was a being in this world that defined himself by love, meaning in him there is no corruption, wouldn't you want all of the power to save to be in this person's hands? And what Paul here is saying to us this morning is, is this is good news. There is a monopoly. One person has all the power to save. But guess whose hands this power is? Is in. It's in a God who is loving. 
It's, a, it's in a God who wants to include, not exclude. It's a God who wants to save, not destroy. And so have hope. Do not fear, not, do not disdain God because He has power and because He has it exclusively. Why? Because He's using it for the good. Okay? The appropriate question then for us as we consider this passage now is, well, how do we know? That's Paul's opinion. How do we know? Um, Paul is going to give us three reasons, three examples uh, this morning. And the points are very simple. It's the power of God before, the power of God after, and the power of God now. Um, you know, Hit that, that zoom out button in your mind for a second, a little magnifying glass with a minus in it. Hit that about six times. Zoom out. Let's assume this point in history is the point in, when, in which you were born. And this is the point in which you die. What Paul here is saying is that God's power is not just seen between here and here. It's seen in the before. And he's going to show us. It's seen in the after, in that which is to come. But also it's seen here. So the before, the after, and the now. Well, where do we see God's power uh, in the before? Um, In other words, before, you know, we had a thought in our head, before we can kind of get our act together, where do we see God's power to save? Where do we see his might and his energy is going to include people and to save people? Uh, Look with me again at verse 29, just the first few words of this verse. For those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreknew, what what does this concept mean? When I was reading this passage, my mind went to where it usually does when I read stories, when I read letters, it goes to movie scenes. And the first scene I thought about uh, with this particular concept was the second Back to the Future movie. You all remember that one? It's been a while since I've seen it. Had to get the rust out. But you remember how, 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 how the, uh, the story ends, right? Doc just disappeared in the DeLorean. Marty shows up at the, uh, you know, the neighborhood. He's looking over this, this new development area. And who shows up? A postman shows up to Marty McFly, right? And he says, are, are you Martin McFly? He says, yeah. He says, I, I've, got a little, I've got a letter for you. And the funny thing about this letter is that we've had it in our post office for over 100 years. And this letter said that on this day and on this hour, you would be here. And we had bets in the office. Some of us thought you were. Some of us thought you weren't. And um, nonetheless, here's, here's your letter. And as he opened it and read it, it was from Doc, from over 100 years ago, from 1885, telling us what? That there is something that happens in our past that has immediate relevance in in our current state and in our present state, right? There's something important that you need to know from the past that will encourage and give you hope in the here and the now. And what Paul says is this this hope, this truth is, is called being foreknown. And so, what, what does it mean to be foreknown? Uh, typically, how this has been handled in history, it, it's, it's been interpreted in a number of different ways. And here's one. And this is not what, what Paul means. This is not what God's trying to communicate. Sometimes what we think when we hear foreknowledge or foreknew, that means that God in his power, because he can do everything, he kind of looked down history. You know, he kind of made a break in the space-time continuum. We don't know how he did it, but he did it because he's powerful. And when Jake is 23... Man, he really puts the screws to it. He gets his act together, and he decides to follow me. And, and since he decides to do that then, today I'm going to go ahead and put his name in the book. Carry on, brother. Good job. Well done. Um, actually, that, that's, that's not what's trying to be communicated here in this passage. Being foreknown actually has very little to do with information. It actually has more to do with the affections. 
It's a term of, of intimacy and closeness in relationship. Um, one commentator says, actually, the better way to translate this to kind of get the meaning of it is, is, is not to put foreknown, but it, it's, it would be better if we put foreloved. For those whom God foreloved. So if that's not what it means, what, what, what does it mean? It means that in this relationship between God and his creation, it started somewhere. And what Paul here is, is, is saying, he said, it, it started with God. And it didn't start with God saying, look, we're just going to agree to disagree, all right? Um, it did not begin with God's disdain. What Paul here is saying is that it began with God's love. And one commentator puts it this way, what does it mean to be foreloved? What does it mean to be foreknown? It's to experience a sovereign and distinguishing love. This is what we read about in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, right? Abraham was, you know, a part of this, this cult and this nation. And what does God do? He foreloves Abraham and he says, this is how our relationship is going to look. I'm going to love you. And I'm going to start things. From you, I'm going to make a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to defend you. You're, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And this promise I make to you, I'm making unto your descendants, all of Israel, Right? This relationship begins with being foreknown, or in, in Paul's language here, being foreloved. That's how it starts. Point being, before we, we can hold a thought in our head, before we can get ourselves, our acts together, before we can collect a spiritual resume, God says, I'm going to forelove you. I'm going to single you out. I'm going to select you. I'm going to choose you. And the question for us, before we kind of move on to the next point, is is if we are being foreloved by God, in other words, if he starts it, and he starts it with love, what were we beforehand? What were we before we were pre-loved? And let me just say this before we answer the question. What we believe about this question has huge implications especially in the, in the topic of, of predestination and election. This one's hard to get our mind around. And, and here's what we need to understand. Um, I'm stepping outside of our passage here for just a moment. But when we ask the question, what is man? What is mankind? And what is our nature? From Genesis chapter 6 to Paul in Romans 1 and, and Romans 3, they don't hold any punches. The church fathers say, we don't show up neutral. We don't show up good. We show up dead in the water. We show up enemies dead to God. And this truth, this understanding about human nature, if this has not been massaged into our worldview, if we don't believe this to our core, the concept of election and predestination will not just confuse us, it will actually lead us into disdain and hatred of God. Because if that's not what we believe about human nature, if we don't believe Paul, if we don't believe Moses, then what we hear in passages like this is this. We don't hear that God foreloved bad people. What we assume we hear is that God forhated good people and that God forhates neutral people. And God had a bad day and he's taking it out on a decent person. You are condemned and you are condemned. Now take a deep breath. That's not what Paul says. That's not who God is. He was saying before we could get our act together, before we could hold a thought in our head, God, out of his infinite mercy and his kindness, 
looked at his enemies and looked at those people who were spiritually dead and said, this has got to start somewhere, and it's going to start with me, and it's going to start with love. Turning enemies into sons. Dead people into people with life. That's before. I'm going to jump to after. We're going to come back to the here and now, but I want to jump to, uh, I want to, jump to the end of the story. Where do we see God's, God's power, His exclusive power uh, to love, to include, to save, not just before, we've seen that, but now in the after. Where do we see it in that which is to come? Look with me at verse 30 again. And notice how 30 ends. And those whom he predestined, those whom he foreloved, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? He glorified. And the question is, is what does it mean to be glorified? And rather than say what it means, an illustration. And this is one of my favorite passages um, in Matthew. It's towards the end. It's Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 56. And it's an often overlooked passage. It's there at the end. And what Matthew is describing is um, a number of, of moments and events that happen at Jesus' death and resurrection. So in, in a span of like six verses, he covers like three or four days. And so what do we read at the end of Matthew is that Jesus was crucified, he expires, he dies on the cross, and he was placed in a tomb. And then what happens to Jesus? What do we celebrate at Easter? What happens to this stone that covers his tomb? What happens to Jesus' lifeless body? What happens? He comes back to life. And does he come back as, as he was? No. He's got this glory about him. There's something new. There's something we, we, we can't quite put our finger on, but he's not the same person he was. And what we call this is, is being glorified, being perfected. This is the final state of those who love God because he foreloved them, is glorification. What is glorification? All the bad things come untrue, as the author says. And we get to enjoy the Father unbridled, unhindered, with new bodies, with new minds, with new affections. No more sin, no more struggle, no more trials, no more pain, no more hospitals, no more cemeteries. Everything sad comes untrue, and everything good stays and endures, not just now, but forever. And we get to see this in Jesus. But here's, here's the awesome part. Remember what happens at the end of this passage? Stone rolls away. Jesus comes out. He's glorified. But what else happens? You remember what the account says? Many saints were also resurrected. Other saints were glorified. Other human beings like you and me start coming out of tombs, like walking dead kind of stuff. If you watch that show. Not condoning it. Other people come out of tombs and experience this glorification, and experience this new life, signaling what to you and to me as readers. That what Christ here gets to experience, this glorification, is the, same, is the same end, the same result that you and I will get to experience. Look again at this language in verse 29. The last part, he says, "...in order that he, being Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers." The firstborn of what? This new life. This glorification. Things won't stay as they are. They will get better. This life is temporary. That good life is the one that's, that's permanent. That's before and that's after. But what's the problem? 
you and I, we're, we're in the here and now, aren't we? We're in life, day-to-day life, in the here and the now. And it's one thing to look at an eternity past and go, good, there's God's saving power there. That's how God is using exclusively His power to save. He foreknows people. He picks people. He makes enemies into sons and daughters. And how He's going to do it in the future, great. Eternity's covered. Future eternity's covered. We'll see that. We're glorified. New bodies. No more sin. No more struggle. But what about the here and now? Look with me again at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, we're in the middle of of a campaign right now in South Carolina for a governor. And we already have one in place, and and she's running again. And boy, the the mudslinging has, has been brutal, has it not? I'm tired of the commercials already. I'm ready for, I'm ready for the vote. Let's be done. It, it's hard to watch. Um, not only is it hard to watch, but as, as voters, it's, it's really hard to make a wise decision, isn't it? Because this person is making this promise. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I promise I'm going to do, right? And some of you are even saying, you know, hey, so-and-so promised to do this, but they're not doing it. That's why you're not going to vote for them. You're going to vote for me because I'm going to do it. How do you make a wise decision on a candidate? Consider these two scenarios. Imagine you have like a trust fund kid, a, a person who's never worked a day in his life. And he says, look, if you vote for me, if you make me governor of this state, I'm going to fix the roads. Schools are going to be awesome. And uh, the joblessness, we're going to increase jobs in, in, in this state. You, you would probably say, we have no grounds to have any kind of trust or faith in you whatsoever. And imagine another candidate. This person has worked in the schools for, for 10 years and then left the schools to go work in, in, in local businesses like, like Fleur or Michelin. And they come and they say, look, I've been in the schools. I know the schools. I, I've been in the workplace. I, I know what the businesses are here doing in the city. And I've got a great plan for the city. If you vote for me, this is what I promise. Are we more likely to vote for the latter, that second scenario, right? When we consider the power... Of, of God, sometimes what we assume is, is that this promise of glory is, is, is in the life to come. And what Paul here is, is going to tell us is, is, is no. You don't get to experience glory in the life that is to come. You actually get to experience na- it now. You get to see God's power now. You get to see God's love now. How? By being conformed. By being changed. How do we as believers know that one day, like Jesus and like these saints, we will be changed? Because he's changing you in the here and the now. And this should not lead you to fear. Instead, this should lead you to joy and worship of God. What he is saying is basically, as you are changing now, consider these down payments on the final change that is to come. Here's how you know you can trust me. Here's how you know that I'm using my power for good, for love, and for inclusion. I'm changing you. One confession at a time, through repentance, one at a time. Which, you know, we, we do this every Sunday. We confess our sin together. Are we trying to beat ourselves up? No, we're reminding ourselves that God displays His power, His power to save and His power to include in this very life. This past Thursday, uh, Tim and I, Brian was out of town, and, and several of the ruling elders uh, from this church went to a presbytery meeting. It's an all-day meeting, usually from 9 o'clock until 4 or 5 o'clock. Um, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's, it's not exciting. But one of the best parts about presbytery meetings, there's four a year, 
It begins with a worship service. It does what we do here. Call to worship, prayers, songs, a sermon, confession of sin, assurance of pardon. But this past Thursday, after the assurance of pardon, um, we, something different was done than what's usually done at Presbyterian. A gentleman stood up, and this gentleman, I won't say his name, but he used to be a pastor in our Presbytery. He used to be a teaching elder. And here's the short of it. Through unfaithfulness and through addictions of many kind, um, he was removed from his position as senior pastor. Um, and in you know, modern language, we call this a fall from grace. And didn't stop there. He lost you know, all, all of his money. Got a DUI, um, lost his house, um, lost his title as teaching elder, and um, what's worse is he lost his family. His wife and his children had to move out for a season. And he wasn't telling us this, at, you know, in standing up in front of us, telling us his story you know, as a man who's hit rock bottom. That was, that was half of his story. His other half was summarized basically by this I have been changed. I am not that same person that, that was jobless, insecure, feeding my addictions and my idols. I'm not that same person I was two years ago. I've changed. And more importantly, it's, it's God who changed me. He turned me into something new. Praise the Lord. He didn't leave me where I was. He showed me His glory, His power to save, His might to include these addictions that once ruled me, they're dead. These appetites that once controlled me, I have a new hunger. And it's the Lord. And he said, I, I give credit to God. And so soberly and, and, and collectively, he communicated this to us, a bunch of Presbyterians. You know what the response was? Like clapping. Presbyterians don't do that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And some of you were there. Some of you in this room were sitting on the back row and supported this family. And you saw, as this person said, I am a different person and it is God who changed me. And why is that so important? Why is that change now and the here and now so important? Because it reminds us that the God who is going to save, ultimately the God who is going to glorify us, like these candidates, his campaign for change and his campaign for power and for love, is I'm going to show you in the here and now that which is coming down the road. You have no idea about this glory. It's great. But in the here and now, watch me change you. Watch me conform you in mind and body and soul and thoughts and feelings and in your will into the image of Jesus Christ. Watch God do this in your life. If you still don't believe us, ask any addict in the room. We're all over the place. God can change. That's the power before God shows us His power by foreknowing and for loving people who are enemies. What does God do with this power in the after? He takes us unto Himself forever, perfected. How do we know we can bank on this? How do we know that we can trust God, that He will do what He says He can do? Is that He is changing us in the here and in the now by His power and by His grace. I want to close with this. We have yet to actually address in verse 28 what the all things are. Right? And this is a passage we, we know inside and outside the church very well. And we know that for those who love God, what? All things work together for the good 
And this is one of the most quoted Bible passages in, in all of Christendom. This one's used a lot. And, and typically, when we hear Paul use the word all things, we, we give ourselves just kind of like a fill in the blank, right? Therefore, we can kind of fill in that blank, whatever we want. Even in this, this is for your good. Even in this, this is for your good, right? The real question for us this morning is, what did Paul mean by all things? What did he mean? The all things here at the end of chapter 8 are bloody. Not figuratively, but literally. They're brutal. They're unmentionable. It's persecution. And what Paul here is saying is that even in these things, even when the saint is looking face to face into the eyes of death itself, what can you be assured of? The God who has changed you and conformed you into his image will bring you into glory. How do we know that we can have hope even in the midst of the most difficult suffering, the most brutal environments, even when we're looking death in the face? How do we know? Um, I want to remind us of a story of Jesus himself. I cried in the first service, too. Man. And it's all for good reasons. It's a story that up until this past week I'd, I overread, I overlooked, I never saw the import, and I never saw the beauty of it. Um, and this week, I mean, like a two-by-four between the eyes, I, I went through half a box of Kleenex going, I can't believe I missed this. This is beautiful. John chapter 12, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, the city. And usually when you or I, when we're approaching the city, the big city, we're going there for fun. We're going there for entertainment. We're going there to be with people. But why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? He's not going for fun. He's not going for entertainment. He is going to his death. Ultimately to his death. This is the city. And he is on the doorstep of it. This is the city where he is going to experience Judas's betrayal. This is the city where he's going to be abandoned by his disciples. This is the city where he's going to be whipped, beaten, mocked, and scourged. Tried. This is the city where he's going to be hung on a cross. And what makes, this, what makes this worse is that this is the city, this is the place that Jesus is going to go. And he's going to experience the wrath of God. And what is the wrath of God? God takes all of his anger that's been building behind this dam, all of this justice, all of this fury against sin and brokenness that you and I and all of us have collected. And in one move, he's going to point all of that anger and all of that wrath on one person. And that's Jesus Christ, his son. And he's going to turn his back on Jesus. That is where Jesus is going. Suffering beyond what we could even imagine. And he's on the outskirts of the city. And he's with his disciples. And he's approaching Jerusalem. And several Greeks, John tells us, ask the disciples, can we speak with Jesus? And the disciples take these Greeks and they approach Jesus. But before they could ask anything... Before they could say anything, Jesus says something. Do you remember what he said? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Imagine you're, you're Jesus. You're approaching the city of Jerusalem. How would you finish that sentence? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? What do you fear most about what's coming? Is it the nakedness? Is it the shame? Would it be the embarrassment? 
Or maybe it would just be the physical pain. You can't bear it. And you're anxious. Beyond words. Or maybe it's the wrath of the Father. What do you fear most? How does Jesus finish that sentence? Oh, hear this. Here's what Jesus says to suffering and to death. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How on earth could Jesus say something like that knowing full well what's about to come? Okay, Jesus isn't suckered into Jerusalem. He knows what's coming and to what degree. How on earth could He say something like that? The hour has come for Him to be glorified. The hour has come for me to be with my Father as things should be. All sad things untrue. How can you say that? When we look at our passage this morning, this faith that we see in Jesus, in His Father, even in the face of death, Paul is going to embody. Did you notice it in verse 30? Look at the grammar of verse 30. Everything, all of the verbs here are in the past tense. Now again, Paul's about to do what Jesus just did in his own way. Listen to what Paul says. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Past tense. And those whom he called, he also justified. Past tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. What's the problem with that? I thought glorification was this thing that's to come. Why didn't Paul use the future tense? Right? Why doesn't it read, those whom he justified, he will one day glorify? Is that a grammatical error? Did we miss that one in the transcripts? One commentator says this about these words of Paul. He says, Apart from Christ, these words of Paul are the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. What is Paul saying here? He's saying what Jesus did. Though I look suffering and death in the very face, what is my present reality? What am I banking on? The Father's promise of glory, of glorification. Though we look suffering and death and pain, in the eye. Do we not have something that outweighs that? The good news doesn't erase pain. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't sweep it under the rug. What does the gospel say? Yes, there is pain. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there are trials. But guess what? There's something much more better. That was really bad grammar. There's something a lot better. And it's glory. Remember, this life is temporary. The life that is to come, that's the one that's eternal. That's the one where there's no pain, no tears. And so the question for us this morning as as we look at Jesus and we look at at His faith in the Father going, though I look this suffering in the face, oh, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And what Paul here is saying is that we're already being glorified. We're already being changed. How do we get faith like that? We ask for it. We don't finish what God starts. Remember the second point? No, he, what, he, what He starts, God finishes. To those, whom are, those who are foreloved and foreknown, what does He do? At that point, He begins to change you into the image of Christ. He gives you faith like Christ. He does it. That's not your job. That's His job description. He gives you faith. To what end? 
so that in all things you can say, the hour has come for me to be glorified, for me to be with my Father. Do you need faith like Jesus? Do you need faith like Paul? Take heart and have hope. The Lord is still in the changing business. He is still in the glorifying business. Again, ask any addict in here. We're everywhere. God is still in the changing business. What good father would say no to a request for faith? Lord, give me more faith. May you ask him of it boldly. Let's pray together. Lord, we would indeed ask of you what only you can give, and that is faith. We do thank you for for loving us when we were enemies, for singling us out, for embracing us, for committing yourself to us. Thank you that you have given the Holy Spirit to us, um, this meal in which we're about to partake, to grow us, to conform us into the image of Christ. And Lord, take us home. Glorify us, not because of anything or any worth you saw in us, but because you are merciful and because you're kind. Give to us what we don't deserve, more grace and more mercy, so that we might together uh, with those who were once enemies and now sons, speak of the saving power of God, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Make it so in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.